Well, turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 27, and we continue in our study of the book of Job. And I think I do not, I don't have to recount for you the tragedies of Job's life, all right? He has literally lost everything from his children to his earthly possessions, to his health, to his dignity, and in some ways, uh, even to his friends who have, uh, in the course of three cycles of dialogue, they have gone from comforters to actually challenging Job and insinuating that there is some injustice that he is hiding. Otherwise, why would God allow such suffering to come into his life? And we said that for these friends, their faith system is pretty closed. It's a simple equation for them, right? Good people get good things. Bad people get bad things. That's how God works. And, and certainly at a given moment, there might be a hiccup because that's the imperfect world. But on the whole, the longer the blessing, the more certain the godliness. The longer the suffering, the, most, the more certain the sinfulness. That's their closed system. And so this kind of judgmental condemnation that has begun to flow out of them, that cycle of dialogues has ended. And so what we have is about two, three chapters of Job just monologuing, addressing his circumstance and, and what it feels like at this moment. And chapter 27 is somewhat unique in that it is about defending his faith and then defending the faithful in general. He takes a slight pivot from everything else in terms of uh, speaking about how he would like God to come and resolve everything. He takes a slight pivot from challenging his friends and accusing them of a lack of wisdom and certainly a lack of grace. But instead, he speaks now to his own integrity and to the fact that God defends those that are his own. That God is one that, uh, that cares for his own children and would defend those that are faithful. In a lot of ways, the, um, the judgmental condemnation of his friends um, is an example of how we might exasperate someone. You know, you have in Ephesians 6.4, right, that classic text, Um, Every man in this room needs to think about this carefully, but it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What the friends are doing is exactly what the scriptures there in Ephesians 6, 4 tell fathers not to do to their own children. Provoke them unto anger. Um, uh, Some other translations will use that term that I use, right? Um, Exasperate them. In other words, you frustrate them to the point that they rebelliously become angry against you. And that's kind of what the friends are doing to Job. And if you think about that verse in Ephesians 6, 4, think about this. The opposite of that kind of intentional and mean-spirited provocation, right, exasperating someone, the opposite of that for a, a father and a parent is to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Discipline and instruction in the Lord is not the same thing as exasperating them unto rebellious anger. 
Those are two opposite things, at least according to that verse. And Job is going to defend his faith because he feels this provocation. And then he's going to go further and he's going to warn these friends that the Lord is the one that ultimately defends the faithful. And that those who oppress, provoke, and in other ways challenge and, um, and demean God's people will themselves find themselves in the path all right, of the children of wrath. And so that's really the two major sections that we'll cover here. And uh, um, let's see how we said it in the outline. If we can get this. Okay, thanks. Um, protecting the integrity of his faith. That's Job in verses 1 through 6. And then protecting the, the integrity of the, of the children of faith, meaning that God is the one that will judge those that come up against him. Let me give you a, a simple illustration uh, to begin, and then I will read us our passage, and then we will unpack it in those two major movements. Um, y- you know the classic, right, like uh, school ground story? There's that mean bully kid, and he chooses to pick on the smallest child that is in his, in his near vision, right? So he's picking on this little kid, and he's doing mean things to him, give him wedgie or, you know, I don't know what mean things, throwing ice cream in his face or something, right? He's just being really mean to this kid. And to his surprise and shock, this hulk of a human being, right, comes running out into the playground and yells, who is picking on my little brother? Who pick on little brother? <laughs> like, like, like Hulk is here kind of thing, right? And then that bully is not only shocked, but frightened for his very existence. That is something of the illustration of what Job is trying to establish, especially in the bulk in the second part of talking about how God protects his children from the oppressors of the faithful. And that, that's the warning section, but he will begin with his own integrity and how he holds to faith regardless of circumstance. Well, let me read you all of chapter 27, and we'll come back and unpack these two major movements. Job 27. And Job again took up his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, As long as my breath is in me and the spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days." Let my enemy be as the wicked and let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off, when God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? I will teach you concerning the hand of God what is with the Almighty I will not conceal. Behold, all of you, have seen it yourselves, but then, uh, but why then have you become altogether vain? This is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage that oppressors receive from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword. 
and his descendants have not enough bread. Those who survive him, the pestilence buries, and his widows do not weep. Though he heap up silver like dust and pile up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the righteous will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. He builds his house like a moths, like a booth that a watchman makes. He goes to bed rich, but will do so no more. He opens his eyes, and his wealth is gone. Terrors overtake him like a flood. In the night, a whirlwind carries him off. The east wind lifts him up, and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls at him without pity. He flees from its power in headlong flight. It claps its hands at him and hisses at him from its place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as uh, we hear the imprecatory nature the condemnation of the wicked, particularly of the wicked oppressors that Job is addressing here. Help us to take soberly, Lord, the warning of Scripture against all those that stand against God's people. But Lord, for God's people, for the redeemed that are here in this room, help us to understand that vengeance is not ours, but it is the Lord's. That our righteousness is not ours. It is the Lord's. And that whether we stand in right standing before you or whether we ought to be counted among sinners, those are issues that you have ultimately um, determined and secured so that we know that we might be right with you if we have placed our faith in Christ. We know what we deserve without Christ. We deserve eternal punishment as rebels and those that do not bring glory to the God, our creator. But in Christ, you have given us life and redeemed us to purpose, to glory, and to delight. So Lord, as we examine the dialogue or the monologue of Job, as we think about his uh, clinging to his own integrity, Lord, may we be encouraged to trust that we trust in Christ alone. And when we see, Lord, the condemnation cast upon those that would oppress God's people, Lord, protect us um, from becoming a people that, uh, that oppress others, that judge others, that have so much to say about the unrighteousness of others and forget that we ourselves deserve all of God's wrath save for the grace of Jesus Christ. So Lord, grant us um, this morning a view and a perspective of uh, Job's suffering that speaks less of his suffering and more of the issue of righteousness, that we might stand rightly um, as your children, depending upon you and you alone for all things pertaining to life and godliness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A thing that we want to keep in mind when we talk about um, uh, um, slandering those that are God's people, uh, that happens from the outside in, I realize, right? That the wicked, and I think the psalmist is real clear on that, right? That there are the wicked who oppose the things of the Lord and the people of God. That has always been the case. That will always be the case. There's individuals that you work with or go to school with or maybe you are related to that will make fun of you because you're a Christian. 
or because you take weird stands on moral issues or because you have this perspective of having to depend upon a God. There, there are those that naturally react and judge you for that. There is unfortunately, though, even amongst our community, a tendency for some of us to judge other fellow believers. I'm saying that carefully, judging fellow believers. And when we do that, the danger that we walk into is that we are not emulating the person of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're emulating another. We're emulating the accuser of our brothers, is the wording of Revelation 12.10 of Satan. He is literally called the slanderer because of all the things that, that, that he does, his main task seems to be to speak and to act against men and women of faith, to accuse them of having sins even if they are forgiven, of still being guilty of things that Christ has died for. He stands against the people of God, accusing justified people of having unforgiving sin and challenging God's verdict of declaring them righteous. That's a warning for all of us because we use the illustration of the bully in the room and that can be us in a spiritual way that is both unhealthy and aligns ourselves to the wrong side. Now that is, uh, I think, a practical application that we have seen um, in terms of the counsel of Job's comforters, his friends. But we don't want to just sit there. We want to take in the breath of Job and his, um, his defense of his integrity as well as um, his defense or, or God's defense of God's people. Let's begin with this protecting. Let me see if I could get this going here. Oh, okay. Protecting the integrity of faith in chapter 27, verses 1 through 6. So we begin here. Um, let me read you just verse 1 to kind of get us going. And Job again took up his discourse and said, and so verses 2 to 6 will speak to this idea of Job's own integrity. And he starts with an oath of truthfulness in 1 through 4. Look at, or, or 2 through 4 in particular, but look at how he begins in verse 2. As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. The oath of truthfulness that Job is making, um, the substance of it is verse 4. You know, he's saying, as God lives and as I breathe, right? This, right? This is the oath. And the oath, the promise, is my lips, verse 4, will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter dis, de, uh, deceit. But look at why I'm calling this an oath. He begins with that phrase, as God lives. He is saying, if God is alive, then this will hold true. So long as God is an actual God and he lives, then, then I will do X, Y, or Z. That, that's why it's an oath. He is making a pledge, invoking an oath. It's the equivalent of swearing by the eternal God who reigns over all. Surely as God lives, I swear that I will do X, Y, or Z. As God lives, but then look at the way that he puts it. Who has taken away my right and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter. So see that parallel structure in verse 2. As God, right, this is uh, the term El, the general and generic name for the powerful one, God, as he lives, 
the one who has taken away my right. So Job places an emphasis on the fact that, that he has been denied a right to speak on his own behalf to the Lord. He keeps emphasizing that. Lord, if you would just show up, I might be able to defend myself and why I don't deserve this in this life. That is, uh, it certainly is something of a weakness in Job, and he keeps repeating this. But I want you to recognize that he does so in the context of trying to understand his suffering. Job comes from the same, same theological system as his friends. That's probably something that has tied them together. And so in that same construct, he recognizes, hey, bad things happen to bad people, good things happen to good people. Why is this bad thing happening to me? And so you see him pushing against that. He's trying to change that. And God is intentionally pushing him to break the barriers, the closed system, and recognize this world is broken and God is still in control. And Job is struggling with that. And so here is this very inconsistent and godly man. He is saying, as God lives... So long as God, my great God, lives, I will speak the truth. I won't act deceitfully. But even as he says, as my God lives, he says, you know that God that has not shown up and has taken away my chance at my right to speak up for myself. And he calls him the Almighty, the Shaddai, meaning the one who is able, who is able to accomplish great things. And in his great power, he is the one that has made my soul bitter. This is Job admitting that there is this bitterness that's weighing upon his soul because of what God has done. And I remind you of something. The one thing that all Job and his friends and everyone that speaks, right, in the book of Job acknowledges is the fundamental theological truth that God is the one doing this. You guys realize that? Job never says, oh, God God isn't doing this, you know. That's Satan. He's the one doing this, right? The friends don't show up and go, Job, I don't know what's going on, man. It's just a virus, right? It's not busting out all over your skin. It's yucky, but, you know, it's not God. No, all of them in every single, in every single speech recognize God is sovereign and able, and this is what he has decreed sovereignly for your life at this moment. And Job does as well. And that's his way of recognizing, Lord, I, I want my right, I want my say, and you haven't given me that. My, my soul is embittered for all that has happened to me, but you are still my God. There's this wonderful inconsistency with Job that you appreciate because there isn't an inconsistency with his friends. They, they know their system and they know where Job fits in the system. They have, they have analyzed it, right? They've put in the information and this is what spit out, Job, you're a sinner, but in Job, he recognizes God's absolute sovereignty. And so he recognizes God as both the source of his struggles and what he has brought to his life sovereignly. But at the same time, he is the very foundation of any hope of being vindicated or being rescued. Otherwise, why would you invoke an oath to the God that you despise? He doesn't despise this God. He loves this God. He knows that this is what God has sent him. And so in all of that inconsistency, he knows both that God is the source of my struggles and God is the foundation of my hope. So he says, verse 2, as God lives. And then verse 3, he says, and as long as my breath is in me and the spirit of God is in my nostrils. So he says, so not only as long as God lives, but as long as I live 
and God's ruach, his spirit, is in my nostril. In other words, he is the one that has given me life. And so again, an acknowledgement that God is the one that gives him anything and everything, including the difficult moments. He says, well, this is the God by whom I swear. And I swear, verse 4, that my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Falsehood and deceit, he uses these same words earlier in Job 13, 7 of his friends. And he says, will you speak falsely for God and and speak deceitfully for him? Job has already accused his friends of falsehood and deceit. But Job is saying, as for him, he takes an oath of truthfulness. I cannot speak falsehood. I cannot speak deceit. He cannot allow himself, not even in the end, with all that has happened, right? He can't allow himself to speak something that is untrue about his God. You remember Job's wife? Her final statement to Job up to this moment was, you know, you should just curse God and die. A singular act um, verbalized of her hopelessness. And not because she thinks that God deserves cursing. She's just saying, this is too much. It's better that you die. So maybe you should utter a curse and let God be done with you. That's how she approached her hopelessness. Job's response is simply, no way, I can't. He is still God, and I still have faith in him. See, one of the most significant elements of Job's character and integrity is that nothing can drive him away from the truth of who God is And what his relationship to this God must be. I mean, think about this. How often have you walked amongst friends or family members through the course of your Christian life and you have encountered someone who professes Christ, but then because of difficulties, because of trials, because of of all these things that are bad in their lives, they have a willingness to set aside or even abandon God. Because God has not fulfilled my hopes, my desires, or my needs in this life. This is not Job. Job is of such a faith that he is convinced that even if God is the one that has sent this, even if the God is the one that holds back from me kind of getting the final answer of figuring out why this is happening to me, he is still God. And for all that he might complain that he hasn't had an opportunity to defend himself, he will not speak falsely or deceitfully about God or his faith in him. Job is a human being in the same way that you and I are human beings. And if God had in a single day taken away your loved ones, all your earthly possessions and security, taken away your health, and you are certain that you are close to dying, I think we would feel broken. We might feel angry. We'd certainly feel lost and abandoned, frustrated. We might even be like Job and wish that God would finally just take our lives. But see, what's interesting about Job and his faithfulness is that he will not usurp God's sovereign authority to do with him as God desires. You realize that? He can even express, and he has expressed, I wish that I could just die or that I was never born, but he won't take his own life. Why? Because that's the realm of God. 
There are things that God gets to do that I do not get to do. And so his statement at the very beginning of his tragedy, at the end of chapter 1, Job 1.21, still remains true to his heart and faith. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and he gave him much, and the Lord has taken away, and he's taken away much. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is Job. This, this is why Job is the man that he is. So he has taken this oath of truthfulness on the person of God and on, on his own integrity, and he speaks to that when he speaks of his conviction of innocence in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, Far be it from me to say that you are right, speaking to his friends, till I die I will not put away my integrity from me. It's a strong declaration. He's saying, God forbid that I would agree to what you have accused me of, bearing secret sin, oppressing the poor, taking advantage of young women, right, just so that I can enrich myself. This is them saying, Job, you are clearly a materialistic worldling, and you are hiding that from us, but God saw. So this is the suffering you deserve. Job's response is no. Not only are you wrong, not only is that false and deceitful, but he says, far be it from me. God forbid that I could agree with what you are saying, that you would be right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. The word integrity in the Hebrew, the root of that, is the word tame, which, which means blameless. And it reminds us, just even in the vocabulary, it reminds us that as Job is declaring his own integrity, right, that he has been declared blameless already. It's the same root word. See, unfortunately for Job, he hasn't read Job 1.8 or Job 2.3, where God has declared Job to be blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. We do. We have. And so we have this perspective from heaven and from the throne that is so different and unique. Now, pause and think about that. I've brought this up over and over again, but have you really thought about this? God, the almighty, the all-knowing, the perfectly holy Lord and judge of the universe has declared, has spoken of Job to be blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. He has used that term blameless. And it turns out Job unwittingly uses a, a form, a derivation of that word to say that I will not put my blamelessness, my integrity away from me. It turns out Job speaks absolutely true to what God has declared of him. Does that sound familiar to you, Christian, in this room? That God could declare someone blameless or righteous, even though they're not perfect in, in sinlessness. That is everyone that is called upon the name of Christ, right? That is every believing soul. Not because you have never sinned, but because in the general sense of what God has declared over you, you have been declared righteous by a God who knows all things. Job, because God has declared him blameless and upright, it is fair for us to say that he is God's child. 
And that we should have a full expectation because we have heard God say it twice. We should have a firm expectation that whatever happens in this earthly life, Job would join God in paradise. God has redeemed his soul. He has declared him righteous. So I know you're thinking, yeah, but, you know, but God said that, but Job is still living. He could still, he could still abandon God. Only if God were to declare it so. What we have is a declaration of Job's righteousness from the throne of God. And if God is sovereign, he is sovereign even over the decisions we make. And he doesn't, right? But you might say, well, if God doesn't make our decisions for us. No, not in a one-to-one manner. But we can be certain that none can snatch us out of his hands. That if God has declared it so, it is so. If you think on those terms, do you start to think differently about Job and his conviction of his righteousness because of who God is and his faith in this God? Because what God has said, his, his purposes uh, for Job his Job's destiny has already been inscribed. See, the problem is that even if that's true, no one knows this. Not Job's wife, not Job's friends, probably not even Satan. Only God knows. Actually, Satan probably does know because he knows when God has said it, it settles it. Only God knows. Absolutely. And the throne around him knows. Absolutely. And it turns out Job knows. But not absolutely, but by faith in the God that he worships. See, because only God knows for certain, and only he is fully knowledgeable about the foundation and future of every person, so it is a comfort to us to know that that even Job, though he can't see it, God is already fully engaged in Job's eternal destiny. His eternal destiny is secure. He has been declared right. And so all of his failures, Job's failures, God already knows. His potential for self-righteousness, God has already seen. His absolute undeserving, it has already been evident to this God. Yet, God has chosen to redeem this unworthy soul. And in that same way, God has chosen to redeem your unworthy soul. Not because of what you have done, but because of who he is. And that's what Job is leaning in on. He is saying, yes. He is saying that as far as he is concerned, he has an integrity uh, to him. He has integrity, right, in life. But it's because of this God, the same God that has sent him difficulty and pain and suffering. He knows that this God is his friend. And so he will trust in that integrity, even if it kills him. And so Job has said that as well. He, though he slay me, right? Still, he's going to worship this God. Verse 6, I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. He says that I hold on to my righteous standing and I'm not going to let it go. 
And he says, when he says, my heart does not reproach me, he means that his conscience is clear. In his life, he cannot recall, like, turning away from the Lord in a way that, that makes sense or that is clear, that d- deserves this kind of suffering in life. He lives with a clear conscience, and his statement is uncomfortable for us. Right? Isn't that uncomfortable to you? A saint, even, even a, a righteous guy like Job, considered one of the most righteous men, uh, proclaimed in the Old Testament, that he is proclaiming himself right, to have an absolutely clear conscience that bothers you a little bit. It bothers me a little bit. And it bothers us because in the end, it is so rare. Right? You think of the rich young ruler in Luke 18, um, when, when he says, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus reads off a number of uh, the, the Decalogue of the Ten Commandments that relates to his life. Um, and then when he says, all these things I have kept since my youth, right? There is nothing in the scriptures that suggests that that is otherwise. We don't know anything else about this man. But is not your instinct like my instinct to say, whatever, man. You probably broke all of those. Jesus probably, broke, Jesus probably brought those up because those are the very sins you've been committing lately. Isn't that our natural suspicion? Because that would be us. It's surprising and shocking to us to see someone so clear in their conscience to be able to declare, right, unashamedly that they are right before God. But you know what? We should give Job this. Not because he suffered a lot, not because he's going through a lot, but because that's exactly what God has already declared about him. He probably cannot actually recall a time that he has done or said something that is wicked in the eyes of God. He has a clear conscience. And yeah, it's uncomfortable for us. But it doesn't mean it's false. He's taking an oath of truthfulness, of not deceiving anybody. And he's saying as honestly and as powerfully as he can that he's convinced that he has integrity, blamelessness, and righteousness. And as far as his mind, his heart can recall, there's nothing I've done that can be reproached. And yeah, it, most human beings that say that, you could, it'd be appropriate for you to go, all right, guy, you know? But this Job seems to be in a category of speaking the truth. Is it okay that Job claims this kind of righteousness in God's eyes, that he has such a clear conscience? And if you're, if you're wondering, well, what are we talking about when we're saying conscience? Conscience is that mechanism of the human soul that bears a sensitivity to sin. It's that mechanism of the human soul that bears a sensitivity to sin, and it is built into us um, because we are human beings, because we are made in God's image. We are created to, to image bear him or to be like him in certain ways, which includes moral ways, spiritual ways. Animals don't have that. They have an instinct. I don't know. I, I'm guessing, but I think animals can be happy. Dogs can be happy. Cats are never happy. <laughs> I know we probably could divide the room into cat people and dog people, but I, I like dogs. Why? Because they're always excited to see their master. They're good, they're good creatures. I almost said they're good people. They're good creatures. 
And in some ways, they resemble us in the affection that they give. That's why we like them. That's why we love them. Well, in a greater categorically different distance, God has made us his image bearers. And so we do stuff, we experience stuff in ways that connect us to him, image bearers. That means our morals, our spiritual, our emotional, we, we, all, we act the way that we do partly because of who God is. And this conscience, this, this mechanism, right, this sensitivity to sin, it can be twisted, it can be warped. According to scripture, it can even be seared, meaning that you could burn it to where it can't feel anymore. The sensitivity is gone. Because we inform our conscience, either by God and his truth, or by various other influences, by the way we were raised, or by the culture we live in, by the circumstances we experience, by our community, by our friend group, by our families. We're, we inform our conscience that's why it's important for every Christian to be in God's word, to read, to hear, to meditate and grow, and not, not merely just to kind of borrow someone else's conviction. That's how legalism spreads like gangrene in a, in a religious community, but instead to own it, to calibrate our conscience according to God's word and truth. Now that, that's what we are supposed to do. And this is Job validating, declaring, that his conscience is clear, right? We've already said that a direct application of all of this is gospel, so, is gospel focused. We find our assurance of our righteousness not in our ability to say that uh, I can't recall the last time I sinned. I can recall the last time because it wasn't that long ago, right? But we find the full assurance of our righteousness does not rest in us. It rests in the work, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that he has paid my debt in full. See, Job is protecting the integrity of his faith, right? Um, by declaring by way of oath and by way of a declaration of his innocence that God has kept him blameless. And that is certainly true even from God's testimony. Job is blameless, so he moves from that to now the whole thing that we're talking about, protecting from the bullies in the room, protecting the children of faith, right? those that are faithful to the Lord, that are his, um, from those that would oppress them. Protecting the children of faith is the rest of this chapter. And uh, don't worry, we could move it through it kind of quickly. A lot of it is, is kind of... Um, um, uh, different areas of judgment that God casts upon the unrighteous. But it begins here with an interesting um, prayer, a prayer against his enemies. Verse 7, Let my enemy be as the wicked, and let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off, when God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? Um, just on a side note, I think it would be of interest to you to know that verses 7 through 23 speaks so unlike Job up to this point that there are some scholars that suggest that this is actually Zophar. Remember, remember there was um, 
Eliphaz, who spoke, speaks first, Bildad, and then Zophar. And then we had three cycles, and this, the third cycle has ended, but Eliphaz, Bildad spoke, Zophar will not speak again for the rest of Job. And so there are some that say that, oh, this section is probably Zophar because it sounds more like Zophar. I know, I know, you keep wanting to hear that dad joke, right? Uh, how is it going so far, right? But, um, but this, this is that section. So much so, and this is just kind of a little anecdote, right? Um, so much so that um, while I was reading through a, one of the commentaries in my Bible program in Lagos, this section was placed before Job 20, 27, so they had moved this up to be part of Bildad's speech, one of, one of the books. And so I thought, right, I thought, not realizing that this was intentional on that scholar's part, I reported that entire section to Lagos as a typesetting error. I, like, literally contacted them and said, hey, I think they put, you put this out of order. Like, I don't know what happened, right? And no one's replied. <laughs> Thank goodness, right? Because it turned out that was intentional and kind of weird, Right? As uh, Christopher Ashton, his commentary notes, many assign part or all of verses 7 through 23 to one of the comforters, perhaps Bildad or Zophar, in spite of the fact, now listen to this, there is no version of Job extant in Hebrew or in any other language that locates 27, 7 through 23 in any other place. There is no reason for us to believe that this is not the words of Job, except that we kind of go, hmm, doesn't sound like Job. Let's put it somewhere else, right? This is Job. And if we accept that, as we should, then it helps us to think about some of the things he's saying. And the first thing he addresses is this imprecatory prayer. An imprecatory prayer. Do you guys know what I mean when I say imprecatory prayer? It's a prayer of condemnation. It's a prayer requesting God to judge your enemies, right? I think I have a little thing on that. Oh, you can't even read that. It's too small. But an imprecation, generally speaking, is to call down a curse or a judgment. Biblically speaking, imprecatory prayers abound, particularly in the Psalms. I'll give you some. Psalm 5, Psalm 10, Psalm 17, 35, 58, 59, hood, hood, hike, right? 69, 70, 79, 80, 83, 109, 129, 137, 140. There's a lot of imprecatory prayers in the Psalms. And they sound, I just grabbed three to give you kind of an illustration. Psalm 510, listen to it. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. See, calling down a judgment on, on these enemies of God. Psalm 17, 13. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. All right? Come and crush them. I should have put in the one where God smashed their teeth, right? There's stuff like that. Psalm 79, 6 and 7. Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. We shouldn't pray that because that is probably our kingdom, right? That's probably our nation. They have devoured Jacob and laid waste his in, in his habitation. Now, if we're thinking about imprecation, and that's what this is, a praying against enemies. And, and I want you to understand, this isn't necessarily Job saying, you know, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, listen up. 
He is saying his enemies generally. It could include them as individuals that are cursing Job. It it certainly includes them. But it also includes, right, all the villains that have come and taken away his property. All those that are mocking him. All those that are standing against the things of the Lord. All those that have reduced God to a simple mathematical formula of you do this, you get this. Right? All of that. God's enemies. This is whom... Job is praying against, generally speaking, and it is general because he uses his enemy in the singular to speak of an entire kind of general concept instead of certain individuals that he has necessarily in mind. Let me give you a couple principles, right, about imprecatory prayers. This is from uh, the Baker Bible Dictionary, and I thought the article in that was pretty good. He says, we need to understand that, the, uh, that uh, imprecatory prayers include some of these principles behind it. One is the principle that vengeance belongs to God. And that excludes personal retaliation and, necessity, and necessitates appeal to God to punish the wicked. In other words, one principle you'll find in all the imprecatory prayers in the scriptures is that it's not God, give me power so I can crush their face so that I could kick them in public ways, right? So I could demonstrate that, that I am better than, that's not any of those. It's always, Lord, this is what they deserve. Will you bring your judgment sooner rather than later? It's God's vengeance is his and his righteousness. Um, and that's the second principle, that God's righteousness demands judgment on the wicked. It's an assumed thing that they will be judged. The question is when. And so these prayers are calling down God's judgment sooner rather than later. Third, there's a principle of God's covenant love for his people, which necessitates that God must intervene. God protects his own. He has said that over and over in the Old Testament through the law, through the prophets, that whether it's widows and orphans, God will protect those who have no power to protect themselves. It is God's nature, and they're asking God to fulfill that. And it's not asking for my justice my version of justice, or my demands for justice to be met. It's asking that God would do what God does and would demonstrate his glory and the fact that he has been watching and that no one gets away with their sin. That, that seems to be the, the point of such a prayer. And so he prays this imprecatory prayer, right? Praying against his enemies in 7 through 10. Uh, let me just walk that through with you. Let, let my enemy be as the wicked and let him who rises against me be as the unrighteous. So Lord, treat my enemies in the way that they are, as wicked and unrighteous. And then he adds verses 8 and 9. What is the hope? He adds a, a number of questions that suggest that one, that the godless have no hope, Right? What, what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off, when God takes away his life? There is no hope. There's no redeemer who lives and will stand upon this earth and will rescue them from their sins. No, there's no hope for the godless. Verse 9, will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him, when bad things happen? Will God hear him? There's no rescue for the godless. God will not rescue him in his time of need. Not ultimately, Right? Verse 10, will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? This is his problem. There is no worship for the godless. He doesn't delight in the Almighty God. He delights in the Almighty self, right? He doesn't want to call upon God. He wants God to call upon him. 
He is looking for things to bless him, not looking to honor and glorify the God who is his creator and Lord of all things. This is his prayer, right? Against them. And it is, in a way, it is the preliminary to the warnings that are about to follow. The warning, right? In particular for some enemies, right? Particular his, his friends, we could have said retribution, a warning of retribution, right, for, um, um, for these. But he begins with his friends in verses 11 through 12, and he goes to all oppressors in verses 13 to 23, right? So there's a warning, all right, for these comforters and all others. I should have probably said warning for enemies. That might have been a little bit more helpful. But in uh, 11 and 12, Job gives a little heads up to his friends. He says, I will teach you concerning the hand of God. What is with the Almighty, I will not conceal. I'm going to instruct you, friends, about God and what he does. Behold, all of you have seen it yourselves. Why then have you become altogether vain? So he's addressing these comforters, and he's saying, let me teach you concerning, and notice he uses the phrase, hand of God, and then he uses God's name, Shaddai, meaning the Almighty One. Both of those things speak of God's power as it is, as it is, as it is a force to be reckoned with, as it moves. The phrase literally in the Hebrew is the hand of God. In some of your modern translations, if you're not looking at ESV, might say, right, God's power. And the reason why is because they're taking that phrase and trying to understand what that means, and they, they, they translate that as God's power, his hand. It, it means that God does stuff. It's not just power like your, your, you know, I don't know, like your battery has power, it's reserved, and then, you know, when you, when you start your vacuum, then, then the battery gets used up, or your cell phone uses up your power when you use it. It's not stored power when we talk about God's power. It is almost the power that moves and works, and like hands, makes things happen. That's the Shaddai. That's the Almighty One. And he's saying, let me teach you about him and what he does. Verse 12, he says, you're already witnesses of what God's work is like, what his hand is like. So why have you turned to vanity? Why have you turned to emptiness? I think Job is implying in verse 12 that they have been witnesses themselves of the work of God in and through Job's life. He's saying, you've seen what, how God has been faithful to me and how I have tried to use that to glorify him in my care for others. You've seen, God, you've seen God's goodness, his hand of goodness flourish. So why would you turn to vanity, to emptiness, to nonsense, when you have all that. So that's his instruction for his friends. And then the rest of this chapter, and we'll work through this fairly quickly, is the retribution that God will bring for oppressors. I'm using that term because that's really their theology. It's a theology of retribution, right? You do this, you get that. And Job is saying there is an element where that's true. He's not denying that, that there is a just God and he repays the unjust with, in, you know, with the judgment that they deserve. But as they do receive these things, Job is recognizing that if you're not careful, you are the bully picking on God's little brother. Right? This is their portion. And so it's a warning of retribution for all oppressors. I think I broke that down. There we go. <clears throat> Verse 13 begins this. 
And it says, this is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage that oppressors receive from the Almighty. And I put oppressors because I want to underline that fact. Job here is not just dealing with the general ungodly. He's talking about the ungodly. And all of these things would be true for the general ungodly. But in particular, he has in his mind what he has been talking about all this time, about comforters who have become oppressors, about others who are probably blaming Job. And Job probably was doing sneaky things, right? People wagging their fingers and, and despising Job, though he has done nothing wrong. And so his whole point is this is the inheritance, the heritage that oppressors receive from God's hand. And it's ironic, because in Job 20, 29, Zophar, the guy who hasn't spoken now, he says, this is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. And Job is turning that around on his friends and saying, listen, this is the real heritage of the, of the wicked, right, from the hand of God. Verse 14 and 15, you'll see there, is a judgment upon that household, Verse 14 says, verse 14 and 15 says, if his children were multiplied, it is for the sword, and his descendants have not enough bread. Those who survive him, the pestilence buries, and his widows do not weep. Whether it's children, a multiplicity of children, and the sword takes their lives, descendants who are starving, and those that survive, pestilence or disease kills them. And so the widow doesn't even have time or energy to weep. It's entire household. Then 16 through 17, it's about their wealth. Though he heap up silver like dust and pile up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the righteous will wear it and the innocent will divide the silver. You might see the unrighteous, right, the oppressors gain in wealth. Like they're just piling up money like silver, piling up possessions like clothing. But in the end, the righteous will start to wear that clothing and the innocent will divide that silver it's a judgment upon their material wealth. And then a judgment, verse 18 and 19, upon security. He builds his house like a moth, like a booth that a watchman makes. He goes to bed rich, but will do so no more. He opens his eyes and his wealth is gone. Verse 19 is easy. It means that he goes to bed rich. He opens his eyes, wakes up, and all of his stuff is gone. Right? Verse 18 yeah, that's easy as well, but it's interesting. He builds his house like a moth. Some of your translations will say something like a spider's web. The idea is the house of a moth, a cocoon, something so light, right, and so thin and easily broken. He depends upon that for his security, right? He, and so like a, a booth, like a watchman, right? Like he thinks his house is his security, and it is more like a spider web, a cobweb, easy to destroy and walk through. A breeze can break it. So he goes to sleep rich. He wakes up, and his wealth is gone. His security is judged and washed away so easily. The last four speak of safety. Safety. And, and look at verses 20 and 21. Terrors overtake him like a flood. In the night, a whirlwind carries him off. The east wind lifts him up, and he's gone. It sweeps him out of his place. <clears throat> if we take this literally, and I think we should, I think he's talking about the terror of the natural disaster of floods and whirlwinds and a hurricane storm and all of this sweeping him away so that he is gone. Physical safety is part of his judgment. Proverbs 10, 25 says, When the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. 
But I don't think he's just talking about tsunamis, earthquakes, tornadoes, and hurricanes. All of them terrifying. But verse 22 and 23, it personifies, Job personifies, right, these terrors. It says that it hurls at him without pity. Hurricanes don't have pity. He flees from its power in headlong flight. It claps his hands at him and hisses at him from his place. See, it almost seems like, like, like Job is personifying, right, this judgment, this power judgment as a demonic spiritual force. And he's saying it hurls at him. He doesn't have pity for him. It claps his hands. It says, yeah, that's what you get, fool, right? And then it hisses at him. It makes fun of him. It laughs. It derides him. You know how, like, we boo, you know? You're watching, you know, your football game, and the other side is doing something. You boo, boo, right? Like, we boo. And uh, I think in Europe, they whistle, which is weird. Right? And then they're mad. They're whistling. I'm like, dude, that's, that's weak, dude. Like, at least you could tell from our, our tone that we're mad, right? That's what this hissing is. This demonic spirit, whatever is oppressing, he is glad for it. He thinks it's funny. He's glad that these things are happening to the unrighteous. It is all of it a warning of genuine retribution for those that stand against God's people. See, it's not just the general enemies of God, the fool who says in his heart there is no God. In Psalm 14, there's plenty of retribution of the unrighteous throughout Scripture for them. But in Job's context, it is particularly these friends and others who are accusing Job of something he has never done, who are turning things around and blaming Job for things that he does not have. You know, the thing I keep reminding you of is that God is the one that has actually affirmed Job's blamelessness, uprightness, his fear of God, and his turning away from evil. And what that reminds us is that God has never abandoned Job. We are blessed to know what has happened in heaven's court. Because if we're just reading the story of Job and we read it all, we might ourselves join in with the friends and go, well, I'm not saying they're right, but Job, it is kind of weird, right? But because God has declared it so, we believe it so. And if Job is nothing else, he is the example, all right? of how everything can go wrong. And then the final explanation, he might not really receive. But the evidence that God is not against Job or will ever abandon him is that he has already declared him to be just. And that's every Christian in this room. If you have placed your faith in Christ, repented of your sins, and trusted in him with all your heart, with all your might, with all your soul, and have chosen to love and worship him, You have been declared righteous, not because you deserve it, but because Christ has secured your righteousness through his death and resurrection. So no matter what happens in the course of this life, the one thing we can be certain of, God never abandons us, no matter how difficult and dark the moment. God has already established us, and eternity awaits us because of the person of Jesus Christ. He's the one that defends the faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time in Scripture, our time to worship, our time of fellowship, and even as we go to our ministry fair, our time to encourage one another to participate in the body all together. We praise you for all great things that you have done. 
and ask that you would bless this Lord's Day to your glory in Jesus' name.